Hey, good morning. Good morning. Well, welcome to the fifth of five weekend services here at New Spring. Before I get rolling here, I appreciate so much, as always, Del Poor, because, you know, several days ago we had an airplane in here. Now we have a cathedral in here. So that's pretty remarkable. We had a lot of people want the airplane. I got to tell you that. That was amazing. Um, if you have a Bible, you have a God book. And when you look at it, it's big. And when you look at the Bible and its bigness, you realize that there's a question that all of us want to ask when we look at the Bible, and that is, being a God book, what is it that God wants from us? How, how do we know if God is happy with us or not happy with us, pleased with us? How do we know if we're okay with God? And I think if you come from a religious background like I do, we would, we would guess at some things that God might want. Perhaps God will be happy with us if we sacrifice, or if, God, if, we, if we give, God will be happy with us, or if we do. Those are the verbs that we might be inclined to think that God would, would honor. But the truth of the matter is, is you open the Bible, no matter where you cut into it, if you cut into it in Genesis or in the middle somewhere in the prophets or the stories of Jesus or the New Testament, you discover that God wants one thing. And this one thing is spoken about thousands of times. God wants you to believe. Now, the challenge to that is believing seems so simple. It could almost be, is that enough? Is that what God would want just for me to believe? Well, I want you to think about some verses, and I just cherry-picked some of the thousands of verses in the Bible, and I realize that all of us come from various faith journeys, and we're at various stages in that journey. Some of us grew up in church. Others of us are still exploring. We're just beginning maybe to explore where God fits into our lives. But if you did grow up in church like me, I want to ask you for something. Would, would you, when you listen to these verses, would you just pretend that you've never heard them before? And the reason why I ask you that is that these verses are so familiar, it's almost like they could just become background noise for us. I want us to look at the importance of believing by how Scripture talks about the takeaways or the promises associated with believing. Okay? Here's the first one. Mark 9, 23. Jesus said, everything... Is possible to the person who believes. Now think about that. Everything is possible for the person who believes. The most famous verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, where the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Hold up just a moment. Look at what's on either side of that believe perishing, which would be expending eternity in hell, and eternal life with God in heaven. And the only pivot point in that whole verse is the word believe. The difference between heaven and hell is belief. I've done a thousand plus funerals in my life. That means over a thousand times I've stood beside a casket or an urn. And very often I would share what Bible scholars told us are the most, most significant verses in the Bible. I don't know how they come up with that. They just feel that way. John 11, 25 and 26, where the Bible says, Jesus speaking, I am the resurrection and the life. The person who believes in me will live even though he dies. And look at this. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is saying the part of you that's alert, that's alive, that's cognitive, that feels, that makes judgments, that part of you is never going to die if you Believe. He didn't say whoever sacrifices for me or whoever joins the church or whoever does good things. He said whoever believes. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Jesus Christ. It is the power of, of God at work saving everyone who believes. 
Well, like I said, I just cherry-picked a handful of thousands of verses in the Bible that speak about believing or faith. Then you can see this huge importance of believing, which raises questions for us. Do we believe? What do we believe? Does it matter what you believe? How do I know if I believe? I mean, those are all questions that we can wrestle with. And over the next five weeks, we're going to have an exploration of believing. And we're going to look at five topics. Today's topic is I believe in God. Next week, I believe in creation. I believe in sin. I believe in the crucifixion. Then we're going to close this out on Easter with I believe in the resurrection. But I, I'm well aware of the fact that we're not all in the same place in our, forgive me for being a little existential, in the journey of belief. Some of us here believe all of those things. I mean, we, we believe all five things, and we believe, that we believe those things fervently. Others of us, we're not sure. We're not sure. For, we're, we're, we're open to it, but we need some more information, some more clarity before we can sell out for actually believing these things. Some of us believe some. Some of us are here say, okay, Mark, I heard your five topics. I believe three out of five. And, and then there are some among us here who believe none of those things. You say, Mark, I'm, I'm a non-theist. I, 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 I don't really believe any of those things. Are you, are you okay with me being here? Do you know what my dream church would be? About a third of the people who show up don't believe in God. That's, that's the church I would love preaching to. Because you know, I don't jam anybody. I just want to sit at your table. But I'm always delighted when people come who are non-theists who are exploring. And you could say, well, Mark, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a non-theist or I'm an agnostic. And so I'm a little bit off-put by this title, I believe. Well, first of all, all of us believe something. And secondly, and I'm not trying to be cute, if you're an atheist, a lot of the people who claim to be Christians really are practical atheists, as Craig Groeschel wrote in his great book. So... With that in mind, I want you to understand this is not a, a rah-rah series where we all talk about what we already believe. This is an exploration of belief of these five things. And I need to let you know <laughs> that today's topic or today's sermon is like the beginning of any series. I need to introduce the series and I also need to preach a sermon. So if you feel a clunk in the middle of this message, it's because we've left the introduction and we moved into the sermon. But since we're talking about believing, I think we need to look at the very concept of believing and look at about six things real quickly before we get into I believe in God. Here's the first one. Somebody could be hearing the talk today and you say, Mark, I have a question for you. Is it possible to be a believer and still have doubts and questions? Can, can I be a believer if there are things that I doubt or things that I question? Is it possible? First thing I want to tell you is it must be possible because when I explore this book, just about everybody who is a believer in God had doubts and questions. I mean, John the Baptist, Elijah, Moses, Peter, David, on and on. So just about everybody who is a person in the Bible who is a God follower had doubts and questions. So yes, it must be possible. New Spring, I want to teach you something if you don't know this already. The opposite of belief is not doubt. The fact that you doubt doesn't mean that you don't believe. In fact, in a backhanded kind of way, it proves that you do believe. The opposite of doubt, a belief is not doubt. The opposite of belief is not questions. Are ready? The opposite of belief is unbelief. Let me illustrate. I fell in love with Mary Alice when I was a teenager. And I told her I loved her. We were both teenagers. Now, I'm guessing she had questions, right? I mean, wouldn't you, if you were, I mean, I wouldn't have blamed her at all for having questions. I'm a teenager, she's a teenager. I mean, 
You know, we had no idea about what it would be like to both be in our late 50s and have grandkids. I mean, you know, so I'm sure she had questions. And I'm also 16 years old. Does she have doubts? I wouldn't have been surprised if she hadn't had a few doubts. And clearly she wasn't dealing with God. She was dealing with me. But what if when I told Marianne I loved her, she said, I think you're lying. I don't think you love me. We're finished here. And so it is with God. If God tells you something and you say, well, God, I'm struggling with that. I, I have questions and I have doubts. So that's, that's understandable. That's natural. But if when God tells us something, we look at God and we say, we think you're lying. That's different. So do, you see, do you see the distinction I'm drawing there? The opposite of belief is not doubts and questions. The opposite of belief is unbelief. And that, that leads me into the second thing that I want to talk about. What, whenever you deal with God or you deal with the origin of life, you're dealing with the unknown and you're dealing with the invisible. Now, here's the thing. No matter where you arrive on the belief scale, whether you are a person who believes in special creation or you're a person who believes in pure Darwinian evolution, whenever you're dealing with the unknown and the unseen, you're not going to have answers for all your questions. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I believe God created the heavens and the earth. You got questions you don't have answers for. I know that. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I don't believe there's a God, I believe in pure Darwinian evolution, you got questions that you don't have answers for. And I know where to back you into the corner, and you know where to back me into the corner. I'm just telling you, whenever you deal with the unseen and the unknown, you're not going to have answers for all your questions. I make that point because every once in a while, someone will say, well, when I get all of my questions answered, then I will believe. Then you will never believe anything because you're just never going to get to the place where you have all your questions answered. Here's how belief works when you're dealing with the unseen and the unknown. At some point, you reach, forgive the term, a tipping point. You get enough belief, you get enough information, you get enough proof to your satisfaction to say, I don't have all my questions answered, but I believe in God. Or I, have, I don't have all my questions answered, but I'm an atheist. You've reached a tipping point. That's how belief works. With that in mind, let me go to a third thing. And I preached this four times already, and it's, I don't know that I've ever really gotten it across successfully, but I'm going to try one more time. There is a myth about believing. Most people look at the encyclopedia of facts that they believe, and they believe that they have analyzed and evaluated every single fact, and they have arrived at the conclusion that it's credible, believable. And, and people will tell me, well, I don't, I don't believe it unless I can prove it. Well, our own, from what I can see about life, we probably have only analyzed and evaluated probably 10 to 20% of the facts that we believe personally. Most of what we believe, we believe because somewhere along the line, we didn't just choose to believe an individual fact. We chose to believe an authority. And that authority is responsible for probably 80 to 90% of what we believe. Most things we really haven't explored personally, we've just found an authority. When you're young, it could be peers. When you get older, that extrapolates and becomes the majority. I mean, after all, when you're reading a post or you're watching the news, why is it they always give us polls and say Americans, so many Americans believe this? Because they are presenting to you a sort of concept that you should see the majority as authoritative. Others uh, would choose to believe an authority of, from, you know, of, the, of media and entertainment. Still others who are more in, intelligent perhaps might choose academia. Others look to a religious source. 
But most of what we believe we get from an authority in our lives. The only thing I would caution all of us about is all those are intensely political, including academia. The fourth thing, we're just, this is all introduction here. Um, The fourth thing I want to talk to you about in regard to belief, this is for if you've come from traditional religious background. If you didn't, you don't know how fortunate you are sometimes. But if if you've ever been in in some kinds of traditional religious churches, they freak out over this thing where God says all you need to do is believe. And so if you've been in typical traditional religion, they will tell you, well, believing is not really enough. But they don't want to say that because that would contradict the Bible. So what they say is, well, it's not easy believism. Have you ever heard that term before? If you've never heard the term, God bless you, you're very fortunate. Wait till I bring the next point up. But easy believism, that, that's, that's the idea. Well, it, it can't be as simple as believing. Let, let me just make a point here quickly today. There is no such thing as casual belief. Believing is believing. Not believing is not believing. There are casual facts. For instance, if I believe that Coke is better than Pepsi, that's not a casual belief. It, it's just a casual fact. I mean, I go to a restaurant and I say, bring me a Diet Coke with no ice. And they say, I'm sorry, sir, we have Pepsi products. Okay, bring me a Diet Pepsi with no ice. It's just a casual fact. If I believe my house is on fire, there's no way to casually believe that. That's a big fact. <laughs> and so all I want to say to any of us who've ever been troubled by religionists who say, well, did you believe enough or is your belief strong enough? I, I just want you to understand there is no way to casually believe the gospel. When I look at this book, it tells me a story. And the story is that I'm a bankrupt, hell-bound sinner, but God loves me anyway, and I cannot save myself. And so God sent his son to live the life that I can't live, and for 33 years he ran the table, and then he laid that perfect life down on a Roman cross and hung suspended between heaven and earth for six hours, and the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for my sins. Three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power, and God has a deal on the table right now that if I will turn from my sin and turn to Jesus Christ and believe on him. He will forgive me, wash all my sins away, adopt me into his family as his son, and give me everlasting life. There is no way to casually believe that. It's just not a casual fact. But a lot of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you've never been in traditional religion. God bless you. For those of you who have, I'll I'll give you that point. Here's the fifth thing. But believing doesn't seem to be so big. Why is believing important? I'll tell you why. Believing something attaches you to that message. If if you believe the truth, you're attached to the truth, and you'll get the benefit of believing that truth. If you believe a lie, you'll attach yourself to that lie, and you'll be in the danger of believing that. So even though believing seems passive and simple, it's not. Believing is attaching yourself to a message. Number six, we're talking about believing, and this is the end of the introduction. What does it mean to believe? Not in 21st century America, what does it mean to believe? But in biblical terms, if you were to like go back to when the Bible's written, all these verses that were written about belief, what would it mean to believe? Belief in Bible times, when you look at the word in biblical languages, it, in, it involved three aspects. So if, when, when scripture tells you to believe in Jesus and you can go to heaven, what's it talking about? You ready? Three aspects. Number one, a message to believe. You can't believe unless there's something to believe. So the first aspect of belief is a message to believe. 
Number two is mental agreement with that message. And the third aspect of it is trusting that. Illustration. When I walked out here, there is a chair here. So I have a message to believe. I agree that this chair could hold me. But then I start thinking about the fact that I weigh 225 pounds, TMI. <laughs> and I look at this and I wonder, even though I agree that this chair theoretically could hold me and there is a message here to believe, well, am I willing to sit on it? See, when I grab the arms like this and jump into it and put my weight on it, that's trust. And that's all it means to believe. There's a message to believe, you agree it's true, and you trust that message. So, with that in mind, we're finished with the introduction. We're headed into the message. You ready for this? The message is today, I believe in God. Well, the moment you hear that statement, there are three possibilities. There are three boxes you can check. You can agree with that and check the box that says, yes, I believe in God. Or you could say, I believe there is no God, which would make you an atheist. And so you could check the atheist box and you could say, I don't believe there's a God. Or there's a third box that you could check. And that is the box that would say, I believe, I don't know if there is a God. I am an agnostic. The word agnostic comes from two words that are jammed together. The prefix A means it's a negative. Gnosis, which means to know. So it just means I don't know. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. I don't know. But all of us are going to look at that statement, I believe in God, and we're going to come down in one of those three places. Now, guys, let me just tell you where we're going with this message. I'm not going to give you the sappy bumper sticker thoughts that Christians often use when they talk about the existence of God. We're going to get serious today. If I walk into a non-theist meeting, which I've done a number of times, I'm going to expect two things. If I go into an atheist meeting, I may not get the first thing, but I'm going to hope for it. I'm going to hope, first of all, that the question is framed in an academically honest way. If we're going to ask the question, does God exist, I'm going to at least hope that the questions are, are, are not slanted or tilted. The second thing I'm going to expect is I'm going to expect that they have a point of view. I, I'm not going to expect them to talk to me about Jesus in a positive way. If they're non-theists, they have a point of view, and I expect them to express that. So all I'm going to say today is whether you come here as a Christ follower or you're an atheist, the one thing I promise you is I'm going to ask the questions from an academically honest standpoint. And the second thing is I do have a point of view, and you would expect me to express that. Okay? We're, clear with, we're okay with that. Here we go. Over the last few weeks, knowing that this sermon is coming up, I have talked to both my non-theist friends and my Christian friends, and I have asked a question. Of my Christian friends, I have asked them, why do you believe in God? And I've asked my non-theist friends, why do you believe there is no God? I have been amazed at how vague both groups are with the answer. I ask Christians, why do you believe in God? And I, I've, I've gotten so many unsatisfactory answers. Here, here's the answer I get from most Christians. Well, lots of reasons. Well, what are those reasons? Well, lots of reasons. <laughs> now, you know, after I've thought about it, I sort of understand why Christians tell me that. Because 
What it is, if you've known God for a long time, you've had a growing, developing relationship with God. So consequently, you know, it's like, well, I, I sense his presence when I read the Bible, and all the things I read in the Bible pan out to be true in my life. Lots of reasons. And, and it hit me yesterday before the 4 o'clock service. Jonathan came in my office, and I thought, you know, if he asked me, why did you fall in love with my mother? I would tell him about Mary Alice today. To get back into the skin of a 16-year-old and remember how, why I fell in love with that would be a challenge. But I, I've discovered that Christians have a hard time with that question. Why do you believe in God? Well, lots of reasons. And then my non-theist friends have a hard time with it too because, you know, it's like, well, you know what the issue is? Whether you're an atheist or a God follower, what you believe is big. If you're a God follower, believing in God is big. If you're an atheist, not believing in God is big. If you move next door to me, if you're an atheist, I want to find out about that pretty quick. I'm going to be pushing our dumpsters out to the curb on trash pickup day, and you're going to tell me I'm an atheist. Why? Because it's a big thing. If you're a Christian, you move in next door to me. You're going to let me know you believe in God. It's a big thing. Of course, if you move in next door to me, you're probably a New Springer because a lot of people in my neighborhood are New Springers. I can't go outside in my pajamas. I mean, you know. All I'm saying is whatever you believe about the existence of God one way or the other is a big thing. So since it's a big thing, we expect to have a reason that's commensurate with it. I believe in God because of this huge reason. Or I'm an atheist because of this huge reason. Here's the problem. Whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, when you get right down to it, it's a very simple thing. And the answer is very simple. It's so simple it doesn't seem to measure up to how big the issue is. Here it is. When you were born, you entered a world, universe. It was magnificent, awesome, filled with wonders, but also filled with pain and ugliness and difficulty. That world tells you a narrative. I mean, it's just like if I went into, and we've got spring parade of homes coming up. You walk into a model home, the builder's not there, but just walking into the house, it tells you a story. You know something, if you believe in the builder, it tells you something about the builder. So th that's what it's like to be in this world. It, it tells you a story. And there are only two options. Either there's a sovereign first cause or accident. That's it. There are only two options. I have, I have fun with my friends who believe in pure Darwinian evolution. Because to me, honestly, I, I struggle with it being credible. I mean, I just think about the human heart, that magnificent organ that not only functions uh, as the capital of the circulatory system, but it also functions in a relationship with all the other systems of the body. I mean, the human heart, we barely even understand it, much less are able to make one. And the idea that that happened by accident, are you kidding me? But over years, I've began to have pity for my friends who are non-theists, Darwinian evolutionists. It wasn't like they had a lot of other options on the table. You, know, you ever go get the last Christmas tree on a lot? And the branches are always broken, needles are always falling. That's the last tree on the lot. So, I mean, here's the thing. 
Our options are sovereign first cause or accident. So for those who struggle with the incredibility of Darwinian evolution, it wasn't like there were six options on the table. That's all that's left. And that's it. I live my life. I experience life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and it tells me a story. Either there was a sovereign first cause or it's an accident. And that's all there is to believing in God or not believing in God. Well, for just a few moments, I want to do something. And like I said, one of the problems I had when I was growing up in church is that I would hear Christians talk about things from a purely Christian standpoint. And a lot of times Christians, if they talked about the existence of God and atheism, you know, they, they would do it in kind of a cutesy kind of way. You know, if an atheist died, here lies an atheist all dressed up, no place to go. You know, stuff like that. But I don't want to do that today. I want, to talk, I want to frame this question in honest terms. What does it mean in real terms? What, what would the ultimate situation of a non-theist be, and what would it mean to believe in God? Well, let's talk about what it means to be a non-theist. Because when I talk to my non-theist friends about, whether, about their ideas about God and not believing in God, typically they will give me five reasons why they don't believe in God. There may be more, but they usually congeal down to these five. The first idea is they will tell me there's no evidence for God. That is fraudulent. That's not a, that's not a bona fide argument. I'll tell you why, and, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today, but in a trial, both sides put on evidence. So consequently, if we were going to talk about the existence of God, I assure you I could put on evidence here today. If we had a non-theist here who believed in Darwinian evolution, he or she could put on evidence. Both sides put on evidence. So to say that there's no evidence, that's a fraudulent argument. But remember this. Evidence is objective. Proof is subjective. What my atheist friends are really trying to tell me is God isn't proven to me. You know, there are people who don't believe. You know, there are people that believe America was behind 9-11. There are people who don't believe in the Holocaust. There are people who believe men really didn't walk on the moon, that it was all a hoax. Even though there's evidence of all those things, what those people are saying is the proof doesn't rise to my level of satisfaction. So I just want to make the point that when atheists say there is no evidence for God, that's not a true statement. There's evidence. What they're saying is it isn't proven to their satisfaction. Okay? Second thing that atheists tell me is there is, and Dawkins was big on this one, Richard Dawkins, there is an explanation for things without him. And basically, they're saying, well, there is a way that all life could be here without God, so consequently, God is not a useful or necessary hypothesis. Um, the third thing they will tell me, or the third basic reason, is there are crazy things in religion, and I won't argue that one, I'll agree with them on that. Number four, they will say life is better and less repressive without God. Now, here's the deal. As an old debater those four are not hard. It's the fifth one. You know, one thing I've learned about dealing with Christians and atheists is that both sides all think they have the coup de grace argument that will automatically win. You know, I, I had the privilege of making a lot of friends as a student non-theist society at Wichita State University, and we actually did a three-hour um, event at Hubbard Hall, and I had a great time. Dialoguing and, and just having a good time over the question, does God exist? When Christians would hear that I was part of that, they would all, I mean, it was amazing how many Christians would ask me, well, did you tell them 
Boy, if you turn out to be right and I turn out to be wrong, it won't cost me anything. But if I turn out to be right and you turn out to be wrong, it's going to cost you everything. It's like Christians are asking me, did you tell them that? And I'm thinking, it's not like the, they haven't heard that before. And the Christians always feel like they have a coup de grace argument. But by the, same time, by the same token, atheists feel like they have the coup de grace argument. And I, I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody has asked me, well, how could you believe that you have a good, all-powerful God. Evil exists. Evil disproves your God because either your God is all-powerful but not good enough to stop evil or your God is all-good but not powerful enough to stop evil. So since evil exists, there cannot be a God. Well, it's not like the first... I haven't heard that one. We'll actually talk about that. We'll take that head on week three. Guys, belief in God and atheism really come down to one thing. And here it is. I mean, I've had all kinds of conversations with atheists and agnostics through the years. Here's what it all comes down to. If you are a non-theist, you can't believe that purpose exists. Now, I'm not going to make that point. I'm going to allow three of the world's most noted atheists to make the point for me. Here's the first guy, William Provine. He passed away a couple years ago, three years ago. He was at Cornell University, one of the most prolific atheists. And he made a great comment. I agree totally with him in regard to his, his premise. He says, naturalistic evolution has clear consequences that Charles Darwin understood clearly. He's going to give us five of them. Number one, no God's worth having exist. Number two, no such thing as the afterlife. But look at these next three. No ultimate foundation of ethics exists. If you don't believe in God, you cannot believe in good or evil. And don't tell me about community standard. If you don't believe in God, there is no such thing as good or evil. Who's to, who's to say that what Hitler did was bad if you believe in natural selection and survival of the fittest? No ultimate foundation for ethics exists. Number four, no ultimate meaning in life exists. And number five, there's no such thing it's human free will. Hey, I agree with him. He's making an obvious point. It's an honest point. I appreciate the lack of hypocrisy as an atheist, but he's saying, listen, if there is no God, there is no such thing as right or wrong, but most of all, there's no such thing as purpose. The love that your mother had for you, ridiculous, it doesn't mean anything. The love that you think you have for some other person, irrelevant, doesn't matter. Your kids don't matter. Nothing really matters. If you're an atheist, it's just all an illusion. Peter Atkins at Oxford, again, one of the most famous atheists, prolific writers. <laughs> and again, I couldn't agree more with him about his premise, if you believe what he believes. He says, science has no need of purpose. Remember, I'm talking about purpose here. Science has no need of purpose. All the extraordinary, wonderful richness of the world can be expressed as growth from the dunghill of purposeless, interconnected corruption. Whoa. Who wants to have lunch after that? <laughs> He's just saying, you know, whatever you think is beautiful about life, just all part of the purposeless, interconnected dunghill of corruption. Well, if you don't know those first two names, if you've had GPS or you've had high school biology, you're going to recognize this name, Francis Crick. Hey, part of the duo that discovered the long molecule, double helix, DNA, 1962 Nobel Prize winner. Francis Crick said this, you, your joys, 
and your sorrows and your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. I'm going to put it in Texas vernacular. You ain't nothing. You get that? I mean, that is what it means to believe that there is no God. If there is no God, there is no good, bad, right, or wrong. There is no, I mean, here's the thing. If there is no God, why would a Marine throw his body on top of a hand grenade to save his buddies? If, if there's no God, why would the police chief of Heston rush into a building with a shooter with an AK-47? If there is no God, if there's survival of the fittest, he wasn't a, he wasn't a hero, he's a foolish person if there is no God. Just saying. Because the conclusion of atheism, when you blow away all the other stuff, it just simply is, if there is no God, I mean nothing, nobody else means anything, life has no purpose. There's no such thing as purpose. We're all the product of random rolls of the cosmic dice. But here's my problem. When I look at this world, it tells me a story. And I see purpose. When I look at my hand and what it's capable of doing, I see functionality and I see purpose. When I look at my body, which is not just a system, but a system of systems functioning together in ways that... I mean, how many of you remember being in biology and learning that your liver has 5,000 known functions? That means it has 5,000 known purposes. I look at the universe. I look at the plant life and animal life and not only how it functions within systems but how it functions in a relationship with themselves and I see purpose. And when I see purpose, I see design. And when I see design, I see functionality and I can't see functionality and design and purpose without seeing a designer. It's just how life and logic work. So when my non-theist friends tell me I cannot believe in God because evil exists, I look back at them and I say I cannot be an atheist because purpose exists. And as an old debater, I'll take that debate every day and twice on Sunday. Three times on Sunday. <laughs> Too easy. Too easy. I believe in God. Faith comes hard for me, but I believe in God. I live in a world that has told me a narrative, and even though I still have many questions and on occasionally a few doubts, I've reached a tipping point, and my tipping point has landed me on God. Now, the irony of all this is if you ask me today after knowing God for a long time, why do you believe in God? You know what I'd say? Lots of reasons. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I sense his presence. He's heard me when I've been in desperation. I feel his love. Everything I've ever read in here is borne out as true in my life. Lots of reasons. Here's my question. Do you know him? You can know him. You say, well, Mark, I got lots of questions. Put her there. I do too. You say, Mark, faith doesn't come easy for me. It didn't come easy for me either. 
I'm a person, I mean, I don't know if you picked this up from this message, but I'm the kind of person who likes people to lay the evidence on the table. But there was a point in my life where I said, I believe. I believe. And if you want to know God, that's how you get to know him. You get to know God by taking that proactive step of saying, even though I don't understand everything, I believe. He's not asking you to sacrifice. He's not asking you to give. He's not even asking you to join New Spring Church, although we would ask you. He's asking you to believe. Hey, I want to pray a prayer with you. These aren't magic words, but these are words of belief. And I'm going to say them slowly because you need to decide whether you want to own them and say them to God. But if you want to join me, you can reach out to God and tell him you believe. You ready? Dear God, I have many questions, but I believe. I believe in God. I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose in the grave. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. I believe in Jesus' name. Hey, if you just pray with me, I know we're crowded, but I have a gift I want to give you. It's a packet with a DVD, a book I wrote, and a coupon for a new Bible. And all you got to do is go back to guest services. I promise you they will not hassle you, stalk you, ask for your personal history. Just take your talk to us card back there. There's also one back by the coffee shop and say, I pray with Mark, and they will give that to you. Thank you for being here this weekend. Next week, I believe in creation.